we'll be looking at the concept of inheritance. And there is some absolutely fascinating inheritance stories out there. I would encourage you to just go and Google them because uh, there's so many funny ones. I just couldn't get them all done in here. But um, there's this uh, lady from Queens in New York. Her name is Roseanne Blasny. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, but she was going to live uh, a multi-million dollar fortune uh, consisting of all her jewelry, a trust fund, a vacation home. And she was going to leave all these things to a fashion show prize-winning multi-terrier. And uh, this dog is set to inherit so much. The dog's name is Bella Mia. And uh, this lady loves her dog so much that she's actually overlooked her two sons, uh, Louis 38 and Robert 32. And uh, when the journalist who was doing this case pressed Roseanne to ask, um, oh, you know, how do your sons feel about it? She's like, oh, they're fine. They know how much joy the uh, dog brings me. Oh, I don't know, I want to hear from the sons on that one, like, getting snubbed for the mother's favourite dog, I don't know. Uh, there's another weird one, uh, this lady named uh, Valmai Roch, Rochi, I don't know how to pronounce it, she's this Australian woman, Australian socialite, and she had this multi $3.5 million estate uh, when she died, and she had two daughters, and she decided instead of leaving it to her daughters, she was going to leave it to the Catholic organisation called the Knights of the Southern Cross. But she did, in fact, leave something to her two daughters. This is what she wrote. She said, um, To my two daughters shall go 30 pieces of silver of the lowest denomination of currency, a pittance of blood money due to Judas. Oh, that's a slap in the face. Yeah, very nasty. They got, uh, they got 35 cent pieces. In total, $1.50, your two daughters. That's a bit the slap in the face if I've ever seen it. Um, and so you've got all these fascinating stories about uh, inheritance, some more bizarre than others. Uh, there were these Hungarians that lived out of a cave. Turned out that they were the relative of this wealthy German woman and ended up inheriting her entire fortune. There's all these crazy stories of people going from rags to riches or from, in some cases, going from riches to rags. And uh, you get uh, this concept of inheritance, though it's, some of these stories can be bizarre, some of them can be complicated, um, we all actually receive an inheritance all the time. That's just part of life. In fact, even if you were born into a family that had nothing and they passed almost nothing onto you, you still receive an inheritance because all the infrastructure of the city that you were born in is inherited by you because you reap the benefits of it. All the wealth of society is inherited. All the beliefs, the culture of that society is inherited by us. It's all passed down from the moment we're born. Uh, and then, if you're really lucky, when your grandparents or your parents pass on, they may leave you even more. But our whole lives exist in this theme of inheritance. We don't even realize it. You inherited Australia. This country was built by people. It didn't just pop out of the ground. It was built by people who came before you and you inherited it. Everything you have, most of it is inherited. Some of it you did build yourself. Yes, you did do all the work that you needed to, but a good majority of everything you have was passed on to you by someone else. And so is this it? Is this our inheritance, this life, this world? This country, is this our inheritance? Because all the wealth in the world will spoil and fade and perish. Even this country of Australia, it's not eternal, will come to an end. 
So over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, introduced to God's amazing master plan of salvation. How God intends to bring people from death to life. How God is going to bring salvation across all time. The Apostle Paul brings us back before the foundation of the world and then tracks with us God's master plan from both back then to the distant future. And this is God's master plan working itself out. And we find ourselves smack bang in the middle of this plan or towards the end, however you feel it. But we're towards the middle end, however you see it. But we're in this plan. This plan is still working itself out. And so God has planned for the salvation of the human race in the church. If you're a Jewish person, man, that's going to grate on you, isn't it? The church? Weren't all the promises made to Israel? Weren't all the promises made to the Jewish race? How can the Messiah allow all these Gentiles into his kingdom? How can he allow all these Gentiles into this inheritance? And we actually find that throughout the book of Ephesians, that's a massive thing. How can we be included? I don't know, did any of you guys have Jewish ancestry? Pretty sure we're like Gentiles through and through this congregation. How do we get included into the promises of Israel? How do the promises of Israel get brought into the church and how the church fulfills all the promises through Israel? This is the theme of Ephesians. And for a lot of us, that's just the air we breathe. The fact that everyone gets included into the gospel and the promises of Jesus, we take that for granted. We just go, of course that's the way it is. We never think for a second, why is it that way? Why would God change his promises? Well, not change his promises, but have a fulfillment of his promises that come all the way through Israel and then find their completion in the church. This is something that is very offensive to a Jewish person. And if you don't believe me, go to a synagogue nearby. I'm not sure where one is. Maybe there's one in Cessna. Go and talk to some Jewish people and try to see how they feel about it. All the promises in the Old Testament find their ultimate fulfillment through the church. How do you think they're going to feel? They're going to be pretty bummed out. In fact, this is one of the earliest uh, controversies in the church, is Gentile inclusion into the church and how the church becomes more than ethnicity. And so if you're a Jewish person, you're thinking, if this is true, how can God be true to his promises? How can he be filling all his promises. We can be a bit cynical too sometimes about God's promises because we can think, man, God's not going to fulfill his promises in history. Yeah, he's done it in the past, but you know, people let us down in this world. But God is different than that. Uh, for instance, 2 Peter 3, 9. Uh, Alice is going to chuck that off. Wait, do you have it? Last slide on this. Excellent. Uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's plan for salvation is very different to our time scales. They're very different to when we want it to happen. We would like it now and as quickly as possible. And we want Brankston to be like one of the most successful churches in this area, like next week. But it's going to take us a long time. In fact, some of us may not even live to see the church succeed in the way that we want to see it reach this uh, neighborhood. Because God, while we might seem as slow, God is not slow to fulfill his promises. So last two weeks we were exploring two key terms, the first being election, 
The second being redemption, two awesome and great parts of God's plan, God's master plan for salvation, to unite all things in Jesus. But now we're going to be looking at a third concept, inheritance. Inheritance. And from our passage in Ephesians, I've got three principles for you for inheritance. Three principles that um, you can find in the passage. First, the nature of our inheritance. Second, the scope of our inheritance. And the last principle is the security of our inheritance. So let's get into the passage, Ephesians 1, 11 to 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, first up, first principle, the nature of our inheritance. Right off the bat, we run into some issues in the Greek. I don't normally go into the Greek. Or maybe you know me as the Greek guy, whatever. We're just going to really quickly touch on it. Uh, the phrase, we have obtained an inheritance, is a really, really tricky phrase to uh, translate. Because in the Greek, it's in the passive. Which means it has two correct ways to translate it. Which is really awkward when you want to translate something into English because we don't have a similar, uh, similar term. And so it could be translated, we were made an inheritance. That's kind of the opposite meaning of what the ESV is translated as there. Those are the two translations, what the ESV has for you there, and we were made an inheritance. So which is it? Are we the inheritance that Jesus receives, or do we get an inheritance? And so it's tricky, and so why don't we explore it? Because technically, both of those interpretations are theologically true. We find both of those things in the Scriptures. You go, what? Like, we're an inheritance for Jesus? How does that make any sense? Uh, well, I've got a, like, a million passages for you. I'm going to go through them. Uh, this has its roots in the Old Testament. Uh, in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 7, 6, God speaks of Israel like this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. As in, Israel is whom God will inherit. Israel is the nation that is his possession, that he will bring, uh, that, is, that belong to him. John 3, 37 says, uh, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. In, in that sense that we are a gift given to Jesus by the Father. When you were called out of darkness into light and brought from death to life, you were given to Jesus by the Father. You were chosen by the Father and given as a gift to Jesus. You were part of the multitude that make up the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6.19 You were not your own, but you were bought with a price. And it was a heavy price. We saw it last week. It was the blood of Jesus that purchased us, that called us. We belong to Him and we're His possession, we're His inheritance 
And the Jews are well aware of that kind of language. Uh, for instance, Malachi 3.17, God says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Fascinating language we see here that we belong to God, but not only do we belong to God, because like I could take the concept of, you know, like I belong to God. God made me, I'm his, but that I'm his treasured possession, that we as a church are his treasured possession. I'm like, ah, like I'm not really that good God. I don't know if you want me, like, I don't know if you want to treasure me because I'm not really like worthwhile. And yet God looks at me and through the work of Jesus says, no, you are my treasured possession. And he looks at our church and through the work of Jesus says, you are my treasured possession. Last one, Acts 20, 28. The church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So we're God's possession, his inheritance, purchased by blood. And we see that in Ephesians, don't we? Because we've been redeemed by his blood. We've been purchased by his blood. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world. We've been predestined according to his will. So it makes complete sense to translate this passage as we were made an inheritance. From the background. All things are being brought into unity, united with Christ. What does it say in that last bit? Good quote, probably. As a plan for the fullness of your time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so you've got this concept of we being made an inheritance, and it fits in, doesn't it? But the ESV puts it, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Also, a faithful uh, interpretation of this text. So, we're not the inheritance in this. Rather, we receive an inheritance. Now, in this passage, have we received things? Oh yeah, we've received a lot of things, haven't we? We've received all sorts of spiritual blessings, spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. We are the recipients of an amazing inheritance. And so, in this passage, in the context, both are also viable translations. So we're in a much more awkward position. How are we going to translate it? So what is it then? Are we the inheritance? Or do we receive an inheritance? And commentators go here and there on this thing. I think Paul is it deliberately vague. Because it's both. It's both. The words carry so much more depth and richness if Paul leaves it deliberately ambiguous here. If Paul leaves it deliberately so we can have the knowledge that we are both made an inheritance for Jesus, but we also receive an inheritance, that inheritance being God himself. In Christ, we have been called by God to be his treasured and holy possession, an inheritance in the fullness of time, and it's precisely because of that we belong to God that we receive an inheritance. It's precisely because God will inherit you that you receive an inheritance. All the blessings in spiritual places that Paul talks about is something that we receive because God has called us out. And so both of those things interact. And I know I'm skipping ahead to a few week, uh, the next few weeks, but Ephesians 1.18, Paul says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's pretty vague as well, isn't it? 
Is it his glorious inheritance, being that the saints are what he inherits, or do we get to be part of what the saints inherit? Once again, I think Paul deliberately leaves it vague. He deliberately leaves it, no, we are, we belong to God, and he belongs to us. He belongs to us as well. So we receive this inheritance alongside all the saints. Jesus receives the inheritance of the saints, of his people. And so we're called into a hope that is Jesus' glorious inheritance. And we receive that inheritance as children of him. You know that hymn, In Christ Alone, is a phrase in it where he says, uh, And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his, and his is, he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. And that song really encapsulates it very well. I am his, and he is mine. We're called to be God's treasured, holy possession. And in Christ, that is what we are. We are his people, he is our God. And that's our first principle. That's the nature of our inheritance. The nature of our inheritance. So how did this all happen? Next verse, verse 11. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So in case you didn't know that it was according to the purpose of him, he adds again, according to the counsel of his will. What part do we play in any of this? Nothing. That's his point. Paul makes it double time in this passage. He's already rehashing, he's rehashing this idea from verses Four to five. What part do we play? Nothing. Do you have any part in your predestination to salvation? No, that was done before the foundation of the world. Did you exist then? No, you didn't. None of us existed then. No one existed then. That was God's decision, knowing, foreknowing what would happen, and choosing those whom He would save. And it's according to the purpose of Him who works all things out according to the counsel of His will, not the will of man. Not the will of a woman, but the will of God. So Paul repeats this idea in verse, uh, from verses 4 to 5. And our experience of this amazing grace is no accident. This is a key part of the work accomplished through the Son. Our place in the kingdom and our inheritance is kept secure in the knowledge of God's sovereignty. God is in control. God is sovereign. He works all things out. Not some things... Not these things, but all things are according to the counsel of His will. It's His will that works itself out in history, not the will of humanity. So if God has predestined it, who can get in the way of His love for us? Who can get away in the way of our inheritance? Who can get in the way of His promises? And so Paul rounds off this section. We've already heard it twice, but he's going to say it again. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, this section, might be to the praise of his glory. It's about God's glory. This master plan for salvation is this great scheme for God bringing himself glory. This is going to bring us to our second principle, and that's the scope of our inheritance, the scope of our inheritance. We've got an interesting phrase at the start, verse 12, I kind of just skipped over it, where Paul says, we who were the first to hope in Christ were to the praise of his glory. 
Now, who is that? Who are the first to hope in Christ? This is another section that commentators go here and there over. Some people think it's the first people that believe in Jesus. Whereas I think, kind of true, but I think more specifically, Paul is talking about the Jews. He's talking about the Jews. Why do I say this? Well, firstly, Paul commonly refers to the work of salvation coming to Jews first. The gospel came to the Jews first. For instance, in Romans 1.16. Uh, I'm going to put that up. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. Did you catch that? And this is Paul's repeated language. He talks about this in most of his letters, that the gospel comes first to the Jews. If you remember in the book of Acts, where does it go first? It goes to Jerusalem, then it goes to Judea, then it goes to Samaria, and then it goes to the ends of the earth. Who does it go to first? The Jews. To the those who were the first to hope in Christ, the Jewish people who believed in their Messiah, brought glory to God through their belief and their trust in the work of Jesus. And that work didn't stop there, but it only was the first, and it would come to the end of the world, uh, ends of the earth. And especially since this letter, a lot of it is about the mystery of how the Gentiles get included. I think it's a really good uh, interpretation to think, yeah, that the first to hope in Christ. Probably the Jews. Probably the Jews. This is what uh, this is what Paul is talking about. And now, Paul is writing to a majority Greek Ephesian church. And I think it's easy to conclude this because verse 13, he swaps the language from we to you. Notice how he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, all of a sudden, the first to hope in Christ were the Jews, but now you, Greek, Ephesian people, you now believe the word of truth, and you now have the gospel of your salvation. Salvation has now come to you as well. And we can't skip over this. Some of you may think, oh yeah, like, the Gentiles get included, big deal. But this is a massive deal. That God would call all people into his kingdom. And we need to have that at the forefront of our minds, that we, there's no person too far from God, there is no person that God does not want to bring salvation to. And so you need to be seeking out all people. There's no church people, there's no certain group of people or class of people that God is going to call. He is impartial. He calls everyone, and we have to have this attitude as well. Whoever the outsider is, that's who we need to bring the gospel to. Because we who are the first to believe, bring praise and honor to the glory to God, but you also who believe, also bring praise and honor to God. And so Jesus is uniting all things in him through the gospel. And it goes to everyone. This verse is very interesting because it shows us how someone gets saved. It shows us how someone receives salvation. What does he say? What does he say in this passage? He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, notice that heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Those two phrases, hearing and believing. Romans 10, 14 says this, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? 
The first thing that happens when someone comes to faith is to hear the gospel message. They have to hear the message of Jesus. If they don't hear the message of Jesus, how can they believe the gospel and be saved? The word has to go out. People have to hear this message. If we're not sharing the message, if they don't hear it, how are they going to believe? How is anyone going to become a Christian? Good music can't make people become Christians. Not even good preaching can make people become Christians if there's no gospel in it. Being a cool Christian won't get them there. Even if our community is the most amazing community in Australia, we will not save a single soul. Because how can they believe if they have not heard? They need to hear. Which means you need to speak. And how do we go speaking? Because I know a lot of people, they have like a classic little phrase, I think it came from St. Francis Xavier, it's like preach the gospel all the time, use words if necessary. Definitely use words. This passage is like calling that out right now. Being a good person saves nobody. Following Jesus and being conformed to the image of Him saves people because you preach the gospel message. If you remember our series in the book of Mark, Mark begins with Jesus proclaiming the gospel. He goes out and He speaks. And if you want to be Christ-like, you have to speak. If you don't speak... How is anyone going to be saved? How is anyone going to come to faith? How will anyone believe? Belief is more than just intellectual assent. It's more than saying, yes, I think that's true. Belief is a trust. It involves faith. It involves a continued alignment toward Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, then you believe that he is king. You believe that he is king. It will show itself out in the way that you act. Because if you don't think he's king, if you just think, oh yeah, theoretically that could be true, man, there's going to be no change in your life. But if you think, if you believe, if you believe with all your heart and you trust in Jesus, your life will change. It has to change. And so, Paul rounds this off by saying, you were sealed with the promise of the Spirit. Spirit comes. Three steps. You hear the gospel. You believe the gospel. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. These things happen when someone comes to faith. This is going to bring us to our third principle. The security of our inheritance. Back in the day, uh, a seal was basically like a stamp. Uh, if you remember when Jesus' stone was rolled up, they actually sealed the stone. as a symbol of Roman authority that only the authority of Rome is able to roll back this stone. Well, guess what? There's an authority higher than you. Uh, and the stone was rolled away and Jesus was raised from the dead. A seal was basically like a stamp of authority. If you were right, if you were a king, you wrote up a letter. You would stamp that with your symbol and that would be the authority of the king and nothing can change that unless the authority is higher. Only an authority higher can change that. That's why I remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den. The king has to end up uh, sealing the tomb with his seal. Because there's no authority higher than the king that can open that up. And so, except for, of course, God, who does. And so we have here this concept of 
us being sealed with a royal authoritative stamp. And that royal authoritative stamp is the Holy Spirit. Your salvation, your knowledge that your future inheritance is secure comes from the knowledge that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And there is only one authority, there is no authority, sorry, higher than God. There is no authority that can come in and unseal you. There is nothing that can come in and say, well, God sealed you, but like, we're going to get rid of that now because this thing is stronger than God. There is nothing out there that can change this security. There is nothing out there. We, are, we have this promise through the Spirit that we will be delivered from God's wrath on the day of judgment. The Spirit is the promise. The Spirit is the seal. And now Paul, in this section, all through Ephesians, introduces the Holy Spirit. And now we're dealing with the Trinity. Because the Father predestines, the Father calls, the Son redeems, and now the Spirit seals and is a guarantee of our salvation. And we see how the three persons of uh, the Godhead are interwoven in our salvation. All of them, all three of them, achieve our salvation. It is a work of God. It is a work of God in fullness that brings us to salvation. And so the role of the Father is from verses 3 to 6. The role of the Son is from 7 to 12. And now we have the role of the Holy Spirit, verses 13 to 14. As God, in His great master plan, brings about the work of salvation. And so verse 14, Paul says this. He says, you're sealed with the Holy, promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, this term, guarantee, better word for it, is down payment. It is your down payment. It is the deposit. It is what you have that proves to you that God is going to follow through His promise. That God will deliver you on that day. He will deliver the inheritance to you when you are to get possession of it. And this is your promise, your down payment. This is how you know that this is real. This is how you know that this will go on. If you have the Holy Spirit, if you are a regenerated Christian, the Spirit is alive in you, that's how you know that you are saved. That's how you know you have the down payment. That's how you know it's a guarantee. It's a deposit given to you. And that's what the Spirit's called here. Literally a down payment, something you pay on a contract to promise that you're going to pay the final amount. It's fascinating calling the Holy Spirit a down payment, but that's exactly what Paul calls it here. And so if you are a Christian sitting here today, you have this Holy Spirit within you. You have God within you, who is your guarantee that you will possess your inheritance. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. God dwells within you. Now, if that doesn't freak you out, I don't know what will. God dwells within you. And in fact, the Spirit plays a massive role in this letter. Later we're going to talk about what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit when we get there. But the Spirit is alive and present within you if indeed you are one of God's children. So something new in your life. The Spirit of God has come in. Spirit of God is here. And He's here not only to empower you, but to fill you for service 
He's not only there to, uh, he's there to not only equip you for ministry, not only to function through the gifts that God has given you, but to be a guarantee that you will receive your inheritance. That is why the Spirit is here to do this amazing work within you, bringing you from death to life in the moment of your salvation when He changes your state before God through the work of Jesus by the election of the Father and then continues that work until completion. And that work being done is your guarantee that you are a child of God. In Hebrews it talks about those that um, are God's children will be um, disciplined. If you've been disciplined by God, that's an amazing thing. Pat yourself on the back, you're a child of God. How can that not bring joy to your heart? Paul says in Romans 8.16, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit not only enables us to live the life that God calls us to, but He gives us a new identity as children of God. He bears witness with our spirit. Now, I know some people here may be freaking out, thinking, man, there's a lot of sin in my life. You're not looking to yourself to work out whether you're a child of God. That's silly. You've got to look to the Spirit of God. And you've got to look to the work of God in your life. Not yourself. Because if you look into yourself, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're supposed to be looking at God. So he confirms that our identity in God is true. That it is guaranteed. Our inheritance is kept secure until we acquire possession of it. Why does God do all this for us? Why does the Spirit do that work in your life? <laughs> well, Paul said it a third time now. To the praise of his glory. The Westminster Catechism of Faith, if you've heard any of my sermons, this is probably like the sixth time I've quoted this, but it's so good. The chief end of humanity, of human beings, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our bringing glory to God is us being who we were made to be. So bring glory to God. Your salvation brings glory to God. The work that God does in you brings glory to Him. So glorify Him in your body. In fact, Romans, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 6. I didn't write this down in my sermon, but I'm just going to quickly go to it. Romans 6.19. Um, you've got this guy who has slept with his, um, his stepmother and created this chaos in the Corinthian church. And you've got these other men in the church as well that are sleeping with prostitutes. And it's a big deal, right? The Corinthian church, a messy church, a messy place. Read 1 Corinthians if you want to hear what not to be as a church. As so Paul talks about in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know, this is in talking about people that are joining their body with prostitutes, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So, watch this, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your bodies. Be above reproach. Flee sexual temptation. Glorify God. Do the works that the Spirit builds within you. 
Now, the work of the Spirit, I could preach 10 sermons on and just scratch the surface. And this little passage of it being a guarantee of our inheritance, take that with you. Hold on to that security. In the moment where you're trapped in sin, you're in the valley, when things seem bleak, hold on to the promise. Hold on to the Spirit. Because the Spirit is a guarantee, not you. Remember that. The Spirit is a guarantee, not you. Bring glory to God. The Father, He calls and elects to salvation. The Son redeems those who God has called. And the Spirit seals and guarantees our inheritance until we take possession of it. What a beautiful image of God's master plan. What a beautiful image. Let's give thanks to our great God and soul. I'm going to pray for us. Father, it's so hard to wrap our heads around this salvation that we have. That before anything came to be, you knew us. You foreknew us and predestined us and called us into your kingdom. Lord, that you sent your Son into the world to pay such a dear price to purchase men and women for your kingdom. And Lord, not only did you save us, but you came into our hearts and into our bodies and our lives and we became a temple of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that is a, a fearful and wondrous thing. I want to pray for my friends that are struggling with their salvation. Lord, if indeed their struggle with their salvation is true and they are not saved, would you bring them to salvation? But those that are letting their anxiety run wild and doubting the work you've done in their lives, Lord, would you comfort them? Would you comfort them with the knowledge that you have given them a down payment and you are the down payment, Lord? Thank you for this work. Thank you for the inheritance that you've given to us. Lord, that we would inherit you, the greatest of all things, is a message beyond all messages. Lord, would we proclaim with our mouth the word? Would we remember to speak the gospel, knowing that the gospel is powerful, and we'll say it to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.